Hi, I'm Lona Maseka from South Africa, a celebrity TV chef and member of the Chef's Manifesto. In 2015, world leaders agreed to 17 sustainable development goals, goals that have the power to create a better world by 2030, by ending poverty, fighting inequality, and addressing the urgency of climate change. Good food is a foundation for everything, providing the energy needed to fight for this better future for everyone, everywhere. Without good food, no other progress is possible. Good food begins with farmers, it's nutritious and saves lives. It powers people and economies. Good food is also vulnerable to disruption and not always a choice. Good food makes progress possible and is about love, love of flavor, health and celebration, love of people and the planet, love of your neighbor and 7 billion others we do not personally know. Good food makes progress possible. To find out more, follow at goodfoodforall underscore SDG2 on Instagram. Share with us what good food means to you and what you're doing to contribute to good food for all. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is, is life. life. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Chef's Manifesto podcast, season two. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, guardian columnist, agroecology enthusiast, and author of the new cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. In this four-part season, we explore how COVID-19 has affected people all over the world through the prism of food, talking to chefs and experts about how we can build back better. In April 2020, the World Food Programme warned of a famine of biblical proportions, with 265 million people facing chronic food shortages, resulting from climate change and coronavirus. In today's episode, we discuss the inequalities exposed and magnified by C19 and how restaurants and chefs have been able to react to them, improving our food system wherever we can. I'll be talking with Colombian chef and educator Natalia Restrepo about how indigenous communities have been affected by the pandemic and how vital food banks and other initiatives have been in helping people suffering from inequality in Latin America. To round off today's conversation, we'll hear from Professor Karina Hawkes, director of the Centre for Food Policy at City University of London. Professor Hawkes is a regular advisor to governments, international agencies and NGOs. Her work is concerned with all forms of diet-related ill health, including obesity, malnutrition and non-communicable diseases, all concerns that have been clearly highlighted by the pandemic. But first up, I'll be chatting to Chef Joseph J.J. Johnson in New York. Chef JJ is a James Beard nominated chef with two main projects. Field Trip, a quick casual rice bowl shop featuring global inspired flavors in Harlem and Henry Life Hotel, a full service restaurant in Nomad that was recently named one of the top 10 best new restaurants by the New York Times. 
Chef Joseph is a part of BuzzFeed's Tasty platform, and he recently debuted in a cooking show, Just Eats with Chef JJ. Chef JJ published his first cookbook in spring 2018, brilliantly named Between Harlem and Heaven. Chef, welcome to the podcast. What's up? How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure, you know, talking with you. And, you know, Chef's Manifesto has been doing the work before COVID and really tackling all the uh, things the world needs at the right and wrong times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'd love to know really is just kind of what's your experience been, um, especially working with vulnerable communities during the pandemic? So I have a fast casual restaurant. The name of the fast casual restaurant is called Field Trip. Uh, we're located in Harlem, New York, between 115th and 116th Street on Malcolm X Boulevard. Um, and, you know, during that time, the restaurant was only open six months, five months, July, August, September, October, November, December, like six, seven months we were open. I'm counting, right? Because I've lost track of time. And we were a new restaurant and a lot of people were closing their restaurants in New York City and I couldn't afford to close because I'm like, okay, I'm going to burn through capital that I have in the bank. But not that I'm going to burn through capital, uh, the brand of Field Trip, many people don't know. So how could I come back from a brand equity standpoint? And I'll just be laying off my employees and giving them no hope in a very vulnerable community where people are losing their jobs left and right because it's a working class community. So I had to keep figure out how to keep field trip open in the hardest and darkest times that I know, or I think anybody knows. And to what I call is like this very Obama hope uh, to push into society. So, so during that time, we... Uh, started to feed frontline workers by, you know, my wife's a nurse. So we started to feed her and her employees, which then trickled over to our immediate hospitals right in our own neighborhood. And we built a buy a bowl program and people from all over the country were buying bowls for frontline workers. And then that frontline worker program now uh, has turned into a buy a bowl program for children and families in need because a lot of people are still affected by COVID because they don't have, you know, the stability of money or the economy is very weak right now. Amazing. So how does that initiative work? Do you then deliver the food out or does that enable people to come and collect the bowls once they've been bought? Yeah, we, we partner up with local, you know, organizations or citywide organizations. We've partnered up with an organization called NYCHA, which is um, city housing. Uh, we've partnered up with Rethink Food, who has done really amazing work here in New York City. So we do reheatable meals. That food goes through Rethink. They're the nonprofit that funds it, the program now. And then we deliver those bowls to a church. Uh, we do about 400 meals a day, reheatable meals. Um, so we've always used sites, Boys and Girls Club, Madison Boys and Girls Club, uh, we've always used sites to deliver to families because they have the access to the families. We have the access to the food. And we didn't, we didn't really want people gathering, big gatherings in the area or to feel like Field Trip was a food bank. We wanted to utilize places where people wanted to help, but they didn't know what to do. So it was like, hey, Madison Boys and Girls Club, you have this beautiful facility. Why don't we tap into your families in need and you hand out to those families. And we started to hand out produce boxes 
and reheatable meals to 150 families a week so that they can have enough food for five to six days. That sounds like such an effective initiative that maybe more of our kind of Chef's Manifesto members could do themselves from their own restaurants. Yeah, I mean, you know, Chef Manifesto, you know, when I first got involved with Chef Manifesto, ending hunger has always been in my heart to figure out what to do. Um, and, you know, even when I was part of my first Chef Manifesto conference or fireside chat or how, gathering, you know, everybody was from a different part of the world. And we all said the same thing was education, education, education can help end hunger. And in this point, I got the education from Chef Manifesto or being on the board of Food Bank of New York City or Share Our Strength gave me the tools to then say, how can I have direct impact, right? And it, I think it's always about direct impact. Well, for me, it was about direct impact. And what can I do? And that direct impact was my community. and Us as chefs or restaurant owners have access to a lot of food, right? And sometimes we're waiting for our government to lay down the foundation for us to move forward to do things that what we believe is the right way but we can kind of do it ourselves. And then what happens is that then trickles into society or into the world and then the government then shift because they see the impact, right? And I think for, for, for any restaurant in the world or anybody listening that knows a restaurant owner or a chef, they should be telling them, you should be in your business, now you should be also figuring out how to feed people. If that's with produce boxes, if that's with a meat program, if that's with seafood, if that's with reheatable or hot meals. They don't have to come directly from your space. And I'm not talking about feeding the homeless. I'm talking about everyday people that just need food. Sometimes it's just your next door neighbor. Absolutely. So moving on a little bit now, after COVID-19 hit, we saw the tragic murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement re-emerged and continued to be a global movement but was re-enlightened how in your opinion do you think these events connect and relate to the food systems challenges we face and especially to the inequalities within them yeah you know i call covid19 the true reset of society you know the sky's bluer the grass is greener there's more fish in the ocean than we've ever had before right and we've seen that across across the globe right india you can see the Himalayan mountains now. It was filled with smog before, right? The ozone layer is kind of putting itself back together. So like Mother Nature was kind of like just pissed <laughs> at, at the world, right? And it made everybody kind of slow down. And in that slowing down, it put people at home and people wind up watching more social media, wind up watching more TV, wind up having conversations with their peers or their kids or their friends this George Floyd incident occurred that we've seen happen before. Regardless where we are in the world, we've seen this happen. And we've turned our back to it. It probably has pissed us off, but we're like, yeah, we got to pay our bills. We need to get food on the table. Um, somebody just died in my family. I have my own issues. But at this moment during, during COVID, you were there and you saw it on Instagram. You saw it on Snapchat. You saw it on YouTube. You saw it on your local news station, but then you saw it every day. And then you saw this gentleman's knee or this killer's knee into just a human being. And it was like, okay, I'm listening to people say, he's choking, get your knee off of him. 
I'm listening to people say, I think he's dead. I'm listening to people say, I'm watching this man have his hands in his pocket. He's literally killing him. And that is just wrong. And now it's in my face. And, and I think people started to realize like, wow, hold on. This has happened here. Oh, I remember this case. I remember this. I remember, you know, Jacob from this town that I read about. This is crazy. And then people started to really look at the inequalities of, of black people uh, and say, hold on, they haven't had an equal starting point. They're 20, 30 steps back from white people, even 20, 30 steps, even 10 steps back from Asians, five steps back from Latinos, right? Um, they are basically the bottom of society or that's how society looks at us. And we've been fighting our whole life to just get to this point of, you know, I just want to be equal like you. I don't want somebody to treat me different because of the color of my skin that I have no control over. And we, and, and in that, you start to look at the inequalities of the system, right? And if you look at field trip, we're in Harlem. We're the only fast casual that's under 12 bucks that started our fast casual in a neighborhood that in our corridor that has the highest unemployment rate in New York City. The grocery store across the street, you would never, me and you would never shop in there. Uh, the food around us, killing community by giving them diabetes, hypertension, right? So the the inequality of the community then is also built. So you know the community that I was raised in, you know, middle of America was still kind of built around that too, with McDonald's and Burger King and Popeyes, but. I had access to better food. I had access to better education. I had access to these things. I'm truly like a one percenter in the black community because my parents worked really hard as working class people to try to make a better place for myself and my sister. Um, but I see it every day, the oppression of the black community that field trip is in. It's like public housing, people living on top of each other, deli on the corner, Popeye's over here, right? Chinese restaurant, uh, vacant stores. It's like, well, why are the stores vacant? People want to rent. Maybe before, maybe not now, but before. And big business move into these communities and they make a lot of money off of the black community, right? Like if we really think about fast food restaurants, where do they, where are they and where do they make their money and who do they market to? Like, listen to the jingles, listen to the music. They are marketing to black people um, and they're making a lot of money off of them. And those people aren't trying, those companies aren't trying to fix uh, the inequality in the community. They're not trying to give them, trying to give black people a livable wage. They're not trying to do outreach to the youth. Uh, they're not trying to clean the streets when they're dirty or feed people in COVID-19. They're just trying to make money. Yeah, I suppose. And so it seems like from what you're saying that the broader inequalities we see with society are just as evident or even more evident within our food system and within our restaurants. And there's something we can do about that as chefs and owners of restaurants. Yeah, you know, during this time, I was fuming with the George Floyd, you know, I was arrested by the cops and got beat up by the cops one time. My whole life flashed 
for me. Oh, and I wrote an op-ed in Esquire uh, talking about it, you know? Um, and I said, you know, anybody could put up a black square. Anybody can protest, right, for Black Lives Matter. Well, will you actually go into a black community and spend your money? Like, will you actually go to a black-owned restaurant or a black-owned boutique store or buy your sunglasses from a black sunglass maker, right? And I'm not saying you should take all your income and push it that way, but take 10 to 15% of your income and push that into a black neighborhood or push that into a black owned business. And you will see this significant change in a course of one to two years, right? The business will be able to have infrastructure. The business will be able to do more, right? Because realistically, most black businesses in black communities rely on black working class to support us. And it becomes hard. And most white people that come to black neighborhoods take an Uber or Lyft, jump out, grab the food, and go back in and say, you were there. And most the reason why you do that is because you feel scared. And there's truly no reason to feel scared, especially in Harlem. You probably are telling people to stop talking to you. Then you feel scared because it's a very friendly place. And that and, and you know, I wrote that op-ed to try to, you know, bring some light. Uh, and also just on the on the on our restaurant industry as a whole is just also what I consider very, you know, racist, Eurocentric, unfavorable to black people and like who's diverse in your kitchen and we're not talking about dishwashers or prep cooks. Yeah, absolutely. And as chefs, I suppose it's about us kind of seeking out those black food producers and making sure that our teams are you know mixed and doing whatever we can to improve the equity that we see within our restaurants and food system yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean I, for me i believe in making my teams look like what america looks like and that's every, it's a place for all right it's a place of the free it's a place of equality like that's what our democracy is based on it's based on that but that's what I believe in, right? And I'm, I'm here to give everybody an equal chance, regardless what you look like. I just want to hire the best person and somebody that's going to work really hard for me and be a good person and all those things. And that's how I was as a, as a chef before I was a business owner, I hope, or even as I move forward in my career and do different things, that people look at me the same way, as in JJ as a human being um, that has value to add to whatever we're doing or partnering together and we're not just looking at him as you know a black chef or or looking down on him and we see that a lot and it's just really it's just truly truly sad that people feel this way because of the color of people's skin and i hope it opens up people's eyes to learn more and educate themselves about black people well, Chef JJ, that's all we've got time for today, but a lot to go off there. I'm hoping a lot of our chefs listening can help improve their own systems as well through this conversation. So thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. And uh, have a great day. And I hope uh, you're in London, right? Yep. I hope London is treating you well and I hope your family stays safe and healthy. And likewise for you in New York. Good luck. Have a great day. Next up, I'd like to welcome Colombian chef Natalia Restrepo. Chef Natalia is a graduate in natural sciences and environmental education based in Chile. 
Alongside cooking, Natalia works as a culinary teacher and researcher of traditional and indigenous cuisine. As a Chef's Manifesto member and activist for the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, she focuses on SDG2, Zero Hunger. Restrepo is also a member of Slow Food and many other initiatives that promote activities aligned with the reduction of food waste and the expansion of environmental awareness linked to the food industry. Today, Natalia shares some of the inequalities she has observed affecting the indigenous communities in Chile and some of the positive impacts of food banks and other social gastronomy initiatives. Natalia, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy for this lovely invitation and have the opportunity to, to share with chefs and people around the world. Thank you. It's, I mean, the pleasure's ours, definitely. So you're a culinary teacher and researcher of traditional and indigenous cuisine. Please, can you tell us a little bit about how the indigenous community in Colombia, where you're from, and in Chile, where you're based, have been affected by COVID-19? Yes. Um, in general, the indigenous and farmer communities in Latin America have been always being neglected by governments and always had limited access to necessities such as water, education and health. Since these communities are mostly living in remote areas, accessing health service has been a challenge also. The poor control and implementation of biosecurity measures by the government mean that various areas of, with a high indigenous presence faced the pandemic with a great difficulty. Certain areas like Amazon forests, which are shared by several countries, is the epicenter of a large number of cases today. Another aggravating factor for this situation in that these communities have a bigger number of elder population. In Colombia, in particular, we have lost several community leaders for the same reasons. The grandparents or abuelos, they are the preservers of the knowledge. Today, I want to pay tribute of the memory of several of them, um, like the people of Bora and Cofán in Colombia and Aguayun and Mapuche in Peru and Chile. I consider that the most critical situation also was experienced by the indigenous persons in Amazon region in Brazil, with more than 8,000 infected and around 300 deaths. The indigenous people in Chile have not been so affected. In particular case of them, they implement the strategy of safeguarding their communities by themselves, showing the fraternal spirit. Let's just hope the real pandemic, the inequality for indigenous people around the world will end very soon. Yeah, well, thank you. It's really interesting to hear your experience and also what you've seen them experience. It's what our podcast is about, really, is understanding this from a global perspective. So what other inequalities do you think have been exposed by COVID-19 in Latin America? Other inequalities in Latin America are the very fragile alimentary system we have. Suddenly, all the restaurants, hotel industries are shut down and we have so much rates of employment. And we see the reality, we are so fragile. We need a lot of support from the rest of the world because we live from the tourism, we live from the trade, we live from, from others. 
Latin America is, is waiting from all the world every time, like come to Latin America and explore our landscapes, our beaches, our forest. And now with all this economic situation, everybody's at home, nobody is traveling, nobody is going to hotels. And this situation is reflected in our society. Now people is hunger because they don't have jobs, they don't have opportunity to get money. I think this is the most bigger equality. See how much vulnerable we are. Indeed. And so what impact of food banks and social gastronomy programs, which you're heavily involved with, as I understand, as a volunteer chef, had in mitigating the effects of the pandemic on vulnerable communities? Um, food banks in Latin America all the time are working, not only in pandemic time, because Latin America have so many extreme situations. We live in a land full of fruits and vegetables, a lot of prosperity, a lot of fish all the time because we have the Pacific Ocean and the Caribbean, but also we have a lot of food waste. It's so crazy. The half of our population is starving and the other is throwing food. Now the, the challenge for the food banks in Latin America is, is having, is having the opportunity to connect with these communities very far. Not only with the cities, because the problem with the pandemic in Latin America are exposed other, other situations like the impossibility to, to go to the remote areas. I think the solidarity is chain around the countries, start a, a new plan. Like, okay, I send the food to the city and you, you send to the indigenous person in these mountains, for example. It's very difficult to go to some places in Latin America, very far. As a volunteer chief and leader of social innovations projects in Colombia and Chile, I think my, my work is food education. Also, it's a challenge to be at home all the time and cook for so many persons. They don't have ideas or training for make healthy food. I think the best impact I, I can do in this time is teach the people how to eat healthy, how to, to have good emotions in this moment because, I don't know, emotional situation also is very important and food is a way to connect with this happiness and this joy and this uh, sensation of I don't know wellness. Wow what a wonderful point to finish our conversation you're an inspiration Natalia thank you so much and it's also really interesting to hear how you talk with such passion and emotion as well and that's not always the case um, especially with chefs in the global north it can be an often more technical approach to things whereas i think obviously what you're bringing to the table is this wonderful passion and investment in livelihoods and yeah all this great work thank you so much oh, thanks to you for the invitation i'm i'm so happy to be part of the of this this movement this I feel like I'm I'm part of something. When I join the Chef Manifesto uh, movement, I think uh, I can connect with persons with the same feelings and the same passion for for cooking, but using the cooking as a tool for the change of the world. I couldn't have said it better myself. We feel exactly the same, and I hope we meet one day. <laughs> 
Okay, I I uh, I have the same. Next, I'll be talking with Professor Karina Hawkes, director of the Centre for Food Policy at City University of London. She joined the centre in January 2016, bringing with her a diversity of international experience. Her work aims to support the design and delivery of policies and actions that effectively and equitably improve the quality of diets locally, nationally and internationally. In today's conversation, we talk about how COVID-19 has changed the way we think about food. Hawks gives us answers about how we can help address these inequalities and all contribute towards food policy reform. Karina Hawks, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you on. First of all, I just wanted to catch up really and find out, um, well, for our listeners specifically, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your role at City University of London, um, but also, yeah, how it's changed in, in light of the current pandemic. Yeah, well, um, the Centre for Food Policy is, is thriving actually at the moment. We have a master's programme and we have to transition all our students away from face-to-face teaching onto online teaching um, and they were very patient with that uh, and um, are doing well. Um, I'm enjoying supervising all my dissertation students uh, through the uh, through the internet uh, but there have been a lot of um, a lot of changes that's just just one of them. Uh, we have a lot of research programs and uh, they typically involve talking to people about how they experience the food system and now we have to do that through WhatsApp and through telephone calls and using different methods. And we have projects in the UK, we have a project in South Africa. And so we're really having to think differently about how we find out information uh, to inform more effective food policy. But all of our work, as before, is all about shaping a more effective food system and how public policy can play uh, can play a role in that. Yeah. And I guess um, changing the way you work and and contacting people through WhatsApp must be much more efficient. But at the same time, I wonder if the the information you're able to extract is different because you haven't got that face-to-face interaction. Well, we've had to delay um, our project. So we haven't yet started this process. We're about to for the different range of projects that we have. But certainly in theory, it'll be more difficult because our work basically involves delving down very much in depth to really try and understand problems and coming up to the surface and translating and interpreting that to come up with some bigger picture solutions for food systems problems. And so we are expecting some challenges in whether we're really able to have in-depth conversations in the way that you can in person. It's just not the same, Uh, but we are absolutely convinced that it's important to continue with this type of work so we'll trial and test as we go and there's a whole lot of researchers out there in the same situation and there's networks developing so that people can learn from each other. So um, I love the kind of truly multidisciplinary approach that you seem to take to our food system and to public health really um, considering all aspects of it um, including the economy and and obviously politics. Um, so firstly, I just wanted to ask you, how has COVID-19 changed the way we think about food 
food value chains and inequality? And what consequences and opportunities does this have for food policy going forward in your part of the world, but also globally? Well, it's a, it's a tough situation. I mean, I said earlier that the Centre for Food Policy is thriving because we're doing a lot. Uh, but the context in which we are working is challenging uh, because of, of coronavirus. And what the coronavirus has done is really raised questions about how our food system functions. In many ways, it's proved remarkably resilient. In most parts of the world, food is still on the shelves. You can still acquire food. There have been innovations in the system. So we're seeing some really exciting activity around local supply chains, for example, and food hubs and so on. So there's been some some positives, uh, if you like, about what has happened. But the consequences are really being felt by people who already experience inequality. So that means that people who are already eating unhealthy diets, maybe eating worse diets. People who are already food insecure are more food insecure. Smallholders who were already on the margins are now even more on the margins. So like so many things, unfortunately, coronavirus has had this effect of, of making a situation that was already unequal, uh, more unequal. So the consequences for food policy is that it's even more important than it was before. I'm naturally a great believer uh, that food policy can fix a lot of problems in the world. And so it presents also a lot of opportunities uh, for us to show what food policy actually needs to do to solve some of these problems. And it's a big task. It's an economic task. It's a political task. It's a technical task. So the opportunity is really that there's more attention being paid for food. There's more attention being paid to food in a way that wasn't before. Everyone just took it for granted. Now it's not taken for granted in the same way. Yeah. And so also a core value of the Chef's Manifesto is working towards zero hunger and malnutrition by facilitating people's access to affordable and nutritious food. However, as you've just been saying, good food isn't always a choice. How has COVID-19 affected the risks of those with poor diets within the food system? And I know you just touched on this, but it'd be lovely to go a bit deeper and learn about how we can address these inequalities. Today is the launch of the State of Food Insecurity in the World report from the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. And I was just listening earlier uh, to the presentation of that report. And um, it was almost like, uh, if, if you want to get depressed today, listen to this presentation. And uh, it really wasn't, wasn't so nice to listen to, I have to say. Uh, because what it showed is that pre-COVID, uh, the extent of undernourishment was already increasing. And it's only going to increase more rapidly uh, as a result of, of uh, COVID-19. Uh, the rates of decrease of stunting and wasting are still too slow and obesity is rising everywhere. And, uh, and COVID-19 is exacerbating all of these risks. So it's a, bit, it's a bit grim. So what's happening is that for people who experience inequality, obesity is a greater risk. There's more snacking. There's a lot of evidence um, in high-income nations uh, that people stuck at home, a bit bored, um, snacking more on the cheap foods that are easily accessible. And um, if they're not stuck at home, they're working three jobs and, and key workers and trying to keep um, the world going. Um, and that also um, is, is difficult when it comes to making healthy choices. 
And those um, who experience undernutrition uh, in, uh, across the world, their incomes are going down. Uh, they're, they're losing jobs. Um, they're, they're losing their incomes. And therefore, they're losing their ability to, um, to acquire food. So the uh, FAO report, which I just mentioned, showed that 3 billion people in the world today already cannot afford a healthy diet. 3 billion people, that's new data just out today. So to afford a healthy diet, there are investments, there are some solutions to that. We can invest in supply chains so that it becomes easier and more efficient and therefore cheaper to produce more nutritious foods. And we need to invest in people through social protection programs uh, in order to support people's incomes and provide basic safety nets. And we also need to pay people more. So a lot of the people who experience malnutrition are people who actually produce food, uh, farmers, uh, small businesses, street vendors. And unless they have more of an income, they can't afford good food either. So um, there needs to be a whole lot new attention on actually the people who work in the food system who cannot actually afford a healthy diet. And that that's deeply worrying, isn't it? But at the same time, it feels like as a chef, we're in a position where we need to procure a lot of food from food producers. And if we can pay them properly for that, by cutting out middlemen and going more direct in order to lift their pay, then hopefully we can have some kind of beneficial impact as kind of restaurateurs and chefs and so on. But again, I mean, for me, I see these issues as needing a multidisciplinary approach and really a double pronged approach from the top through food policy, but also from us as chefs, the more active we can become in supporting these changes in the supply chains, the better. It'd be interesting to know, I mean, as a chef, is there any way for chefs to get involved with food policy or in these debates around what's to be done? How can chefs get involved? Well, I think, as you said, chefs can look at the basics of their own businesses and think about what they're paying people and where they're acquiring their products from, um, the uh, uh, nutritional quality of the food that they're serving, um, whether they're supporting entrepreneurial businesses. So there's lots that chefs can do to support a better food system. When it comes to public policy, chefs are a lot cooler than public policy. Um, uh, They're more popular. Public policy often comes across as you're interfering in people's lives. People don't trust government very much. You know, that the the data is very clear globally that people have lost trust in government and not for altogether bad reasons a lot of the time. Government policy doesn't always have a very good name, but it's absolutely essential. If it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it. Absolutely essential. So what chefs can do, I think, is a couple of things. First is, is that they can develop their own asks of public policy. And, and that really needs to be around what would actually help them be better businesses. To me, restaurants are a business um, and they can be a profitable business. They can be an economically viable business and they can also help support a more effective food system. But what support do you need as chefs 
from public policy to make it easier for you? What are the incentives that you need? I don't necessarily mean financial. It could be regulation. It could be things to do with food safety. It could be things to do with how you dispose of waste. What are they? Get a clear list of ours together for the policymakers. And policymakers are just like the rest of us. They like to meet interesting people. And chefs are quite interesting people. You know, they, they kind of, you know, you imagine them in the kitchen doing their thing and serving restaurants, much more interested in academics than stuck in grey offices. So, you know, they might be quite excited to meet you. <laughs> Listen. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I both agree with you, but of course disagree with you. I think um, your role in society is just fascinating. And you've proven that today um, with your incredible answers and, and depth of knowledge. Thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for hours, but this is a short interview. So hopefully we can invite you back onto the podcast again. Thank you so much for joining us. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And that's all for episode three. See you next week for this season's ultimate episode. I'll be chatting with a host of chefs from around the world about how we can build back better, improving the future of hospitality. On this episode, we'll be speaking with plant-based chef Peggy Chan from Hong Kong, chef owner of Lola Copenhagen, Camilla Seidler, Mark Graham, the global chef culinary director of Kellogg's, Egyptian TV chef Manal Alalem, and Canadian chef Suzanne Barr, one of North America's most respected chefs. I've been your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt. I do hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Whether you are a chef, professional, or food lover, please subscribe, rate, and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to engage with as many chefs as we can around the world, strengthening the global movement of chefs at the forefront of change. See you then. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs> Get involved. <laughs>